WRHU is underwritten in part by Christopher Cavallero and ARC Excess and Surplus, LLC. ARC Excess and Surplus is a wholesale insurance brokerage that offers professional liability products and services. Information about ARC is available at arcbrokers.com. That's arcbrokers.com. Autopurodue Jewelry and Watches underwrites programming on WRHU. Oropuro 2, Cristina and Terry Matozzo, is located at 1033 Hampstead Turnpike in Franklin Square. WRHU programming is underwritten by The Inn at Fox Hollow, located in Woodbury, New York. The Inn at Fox Hollow is a hotel and also offers catering and event services. The Inn at Fox Hollow is located at 7755 Jericho Turnpike in Woodbury. Information can be found at www.theinnatfoxhollow.com and at 800-291-8090. The Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell supports programming on WRHU Radio Hofstra University. Information about the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell can be found at medicine.hofstra.edu. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant is proud to support WRHU Radio Hofstra University. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant is located at 910 Hempstead Turnpike in Franklin Square, four miles west of Hofstra University. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant menu includes pizza, pasta, and other Italian food specialties in addition to catering. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant features on-site dining and delivers food. More information about Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant of Franklin Square can be found at 516-488-9898 and online at www.pizzafranklinsquare.com. Jim Metzger and the Whitmore Insurance Group Garden City underwrites programming on WRHU. The Lawrence Herbert School of Communication is a proud supporter of WRHU, Radio Hofstra University. Information about the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at hofstra.edu slash Herbert. WRHU programming is underwritten by Chateaubriand Catering in Carl Place, New York. Chateaubriand offers catering and event services. Chateaubriand is located at 440 Old Country Road in Carl Place. Information can be found at www.chateaubriand.com and at 516-334-6125. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. W-W-R-H-U. A National Association of Broadcasters, multiple Marconi Award-winning station. W-R-H-U. Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, international issues. This is the last Morning Wake Up Call of the semester. I'm your host, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Seville Rateau and Amelia Sack. In our first hour, two local coaches message where the abortion issue is after Dobbs and how the census needs fixing. You don't want to miss it. Bill, we've come so far. It's finally the end of the semester. How are you guys feeling at 7 a.m.? You guys are real heroes for coming in today. I give you guys a lot of credit. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty energized. I'm excited to do our last show together, and I'm excited to be traveling home later today. And you, Sibyl? Yeah, I'm I'm feeling tired mostly uh, above all things but i'm also a little sentimental because it's been a good semester doing morning wake-up call with you guys fortunately nick isn't here but um yeah like i'm ready for the show i'm also with amelia i'm ready to go home yeah i'm ready to go home too it's been a long (laughs) long year this last week it feels like yeah finals were okay uh yeah for the most part um yeah they're done. That's, yeah. that's, that's all that That's the biggest yeah. thing. They're completed. Hey, that uh, that geology final wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. That, that was, was good. Yeah, that was a win for me. You know, about I, you, Danny? you know I showed up two hours late to that? I was going to text you, but I was like, maybe he planned to take it later. You know what? Later. I was... I was so shot. I, I was like, you know, I didn't know it was a different time. Oh. I forgot. Because I... I'm really bad at looking at like when finals are scheduled, yeah. so I didn't know that it was so far away from the usual time. Because like, oh, I get to sleep in, that's great. And then I show up to class, and there's three people taking, and I go, oh no. Luckily, uh, the professor didn't mind, and I took it. That's good. And I got an A. Yeah. So, I can imagine yeah. your heart sank at that moment. That oh, you it, it sank. I was texting my girlfriend, <laughs> uh, Nicole. The texts weren't exactly the most clean things in the world, but I overreacted. Um, <laughs> But as you mentioned, uh, Nick is not here. Unfortunately, he is sick. But we will be reading his report later and definitely shouting him out at the end of the show in our last segment. But that means we have a new meteorologist today, future Channel 7 meteorologist, Amelia Sack, uh, to give us the weather report. Amelia, ready to fill in for Nick? I know it's a, it's a, it's a real tall task. Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. Let's go. For today's weather forecast, it is currently 31 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it's pretty sunny. The rest of the day should be 35 degrees with an expected high of 40 degrees during the day and a low of 30 in the evening. Holiday weather is in the air and it's freezing, so bundle up. It's freezing. You didn't read it like Nick reads it. I know. Like really slow. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. You couldn't do it. It's, it's, his couldn't do it's his thing. It's his thing. It's his thing. You know, he he has his own very, very pronounced cadence and enunciation. But thank you, Amelia. And when it comes to some headlines that were dominating the news, especially yesterday, there were some big ones, especially with the World Cup. Uh, and that's why we have Bill Rateau giving us five things you need to know this morning. So, Bill, take it away. In the first World Cup final to head penalties since 2006, Argentina topped France in a thrilling championship match. Gonzalo Montiel scored the decisive fourth penalty kick for the Argentinians. 
a new report shows that since 2020, gun violence is the number one killer of children in America. The U.S. has 46% of the, of the global child population, but 97% of all child deaths. The United States has seen 6% jump in layoffs in 2022, highlighted by the massive layoffs at tech companies right before the holidays. That sounds a lot like coal in the workers' stockings. A new survey shows that almost half of U.S. adult children live with their parents and mothers and fathers agree that the trend isn't a good one. 48% of Americans age 18 to 29 still live with their folks. Jake Gyllenhaal turns 42 today. The actor is known for both his prominent roles on screen and his previous relationship with a certain Taylor Swift. You want to say happy birthday to uh, Mr. Gyllenhaal, Amelia, today? No. No? No No. Oh, happy birthday? No, not Taylor Swift stands are not Yeah, fans Jake of Gyllenhaal. him. He's a good actor, but person? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Can't agree on that one. Yeah. Do you guys still live with your parents if you don't have a full-time residence yet? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, because I'm living off campus, but... So when is an appropriate time to not live with your parents, given that result? Because a lot of since the pandemic, a lot of people have started doing it. Um, I feel like because of our economy today, it's it's harder to just, um, you know, move out. Like, it's harder to move out from your parents than it was like 10 years ago. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like whenever is right for you. I feel like, though, at a certain point for me... Like, if I have a full-time job and I'm, you know, fine financially, I would probably choose to move out. But um, post-grad, that might be an option for me, you know, working a full-time job while living at home with my parents just to save that extra money. So I think it's just whenever is best see, for you. But see, here, yeah. here's the, like, it's, it's just one of those things where you think smarter, not harder. Because you have a residence where you don't pay for it. Right. I mean, you may, they may make you pay what is essentially rent for your room, but it's never going to be full price. The landlords are your parents. They love you, hopefully. <laughs> and it's a nice, mostly suburban locale with good neighbors, somewhere you've been for a long time. It's prime real estate, given your life story. Why would you ever move out in a way? Obviously, you want to stake out your independence, but financially and in terms of social implications, living at home can be a big help. But I understand why parents are just like, oh, you know, I get to just you know, get our own place or something oh. like that. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an interesting dynamic, but I feel like it's been a phenomenon before COVID Definitely. really drove it into the ground. But hey, maybe, hopefully, but think about this too. Our generation and millennials have been racked by massive economic downturns. So is it really our fault? No. No. I don't think so. It's, it's Lehman Brothers' fault that... That firm that caused the 08 crash or recession, it's Lehman Brothers' fault. It's all their fault. Hmm. Um, our first 30 minutes of the show are dedicated to some features done out of uh, Vice Dean Murillo's class. Uh, his podcast production class finished up last week. We listened to, listened to the final projects of everyone. And our first comes from fellow Morning Wake Up Call department member Ronnie Gonzalez. And he talks about his his time spent uh, spent with 
local coaches at Christ the King High School. So here's the suggested host lead he gave me. If you grew up playing a sport, chances are you dreamt of becoming a pro. You imagined playing under the bright lights with thousands of fans screaming your name and cheering you on. Unfortunately, only a few youth athletes ever really make it. For the most, that dream is being is a dream. Uh, for a national student-athlete population of nearly 1.1 million, only 1% of them make it to the pros. So what happens to those players who did not see their dreams come true, and how does one prepare the next generation to take on that harsh reality if and when the day comes? Ronnie Gonzalez looked into this by visiting a local school where this dynamic is playing out daily. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. It's a Wednesday afternoon at Christiking High School in Middle Village, Queens. Sneakers are squeaking on the hardwood as the coaches' voices echo through the gym. It's the orchestra of high school basketball practice in full swing. The girls' varsity team is split in half, red on white, facing off in a half-court practice game. While one side passes the ball around looking for an opening, the other crowds the paint to defend. For these high school players, this is their life. The time spent in the gym listening to coach and repeatedly doing drills, all the steps towards achieving their dream, going pro. But what happens when those dreams don't come true? My cousin had played, you know, played high-level baseball in college and everything, and he was a pitcher. He was on the verge of being drafted. This is the voice of Joe DeLuca, assistant coach of the girls' varsity basketball team at Christ the King High School located in Middle Village, Queens. So once he blew out his shoulder and didn't get drafted, I kind of had a little more of a reality. For DeLuca's cousin, the shattered dream was baseball. For DeLuca, it was playing basketball in a professional league overseas. But his cousin's experience with injury forced him to rethink his approach for the future. So, I mean, from that, he just pretty much told me you have to have a backup plan because sports is going to stop one day. You know, athletes only are only able to, to play to a certain age. And, you know, that really made me lock in on, all right, well, what's something else I want to do? The NCAA recently released a study that put into perspective just how slim the chances are for athletes to advance to the next level. Out of roughly 500,000 men's basketball players, only 3.4% of them will go on to play in college, and only 1.2% of that will ever make it to the NBA. For women, those numbers are even smaller. Out of roughly 400,000 players, only 3.8% will go to college, with only 0.9% of that going on to the WNBA. Unfortunately for Coach DeLuca, he was one of the majority of young athletes who did have to find something else to do. I was going to try out for a team overseas, and uh, the medical, they wouldn't clear me because of all my ankle surgeries and my foot surgery. So it was more of like a liability in the sense of like, all right, if we sign you, but if we get hurt, we have the right to drop you. And it's like, whoa, I can stub my toe, have a bad day, and be like, all right, this guy's gone. So what then is the next step for an athlete that suddenly finds himself without that original purpose? Does one step away from the sport entirely and pursue something new? Or can a former player come back to the game, but in a way that may be different from their original plan? So it was like a four-month period that I was just like, I don't want to say depressed, but I would say bummed out. 
DeLuca found himself working in his brother's construction company at the time. And it was just like, man, I miss basketball. And one of my former college coaches had hit me up. And he's like, hey, man, I'm doing this, this Greek league. It's a basketball league. I'm giving back. You know, I'm coaching girls. Why don't you come down and just sit on the bench? Like, help me a coach. I'm like, coach? And coach girls? And it was in that chance that he found his way back to the sport he loved. Albeit, in a way, he didn't know he would love so much. By the third game, I had a notepad. I was giving them notes. It was like, oh, man, this is fun. And then it's like, well, is this this much fun with, like, 12- and 13-year-olds? What is it like with, like, high school and, and college kids? Motivated by his early coaching experiences, DeLuca went on to start a travel basketball team under AAU, or the Amateur Athletic Union. I mean, it revolve, everything revolves around coaching, and it's great because my family understands, and it's like I've missed a ton of stuff with my family because of coaching, and, and everyone's like all about it. Like, this is what you do. We love it. Fully invested. Unfortunately, not everyone is as lucky to find their way back to the sport they love. Most feel lost and are forced to move on and find another career. However, DeLuca explains that he recognizes the talents of his players and encourages them to pursue them. It's more about like learning the kids, like learn what they like, right? Like we've had kids that, yeah, they were great basketball players, but you know what? They were better writers, you know, like they were better actors. They were better. Like we've had guys here that are like, I'm going to the NBA. All right. Now, 10 years later, you're on Grey's Anatomy. We have the kid Justin Kirkland who played for me and Ian Duff who played for me, who are actors now. Joe Arbatello is the principal and boys varsity head coach at Christ King High School. His former students, Justin Kirkland and Ian Duff, would both go on to become successful actors. So even though they didn't know maybe that was their backup plan because they always thought they were going to play in the NBA, uh, you know, they started doing that in high school and started to realize there's other things besides just dribbling the basketball. According to Principal Arbatello, in some cases, it's not only about giving his players a sense of reality, but the parents as well. Especially in today's Instagram, you know, social media world, sometimes the parent is pushing a little bit more than the kid is. To push back against that pressure from parents, both DeLuca and Principal Arbatello teach their athletes to use basketball, not let basketball use them. It's all in giving them the opportunities, not taking it away. And I feel the more we, we give the information to the players of you could do stuff after basketball, but you have to let basketball be your tool is the hardest thing to come across, right? Don't let basketball use you, use basketball. And the easiest way for me to do that is I bring in my wife. I let my wife, who's a, a therapist, a mental health therapist, tell the kids what her student loans are like, how much she has to pay, and then on top of that, how much she makes each year, right? Then I explain how I was able to get a scholarship. I don't have any student loans and I don't have to worry about that monthly payment to get where I wanted to be. Coach DeLuca's words come from experience. He explains that cutting kids from the team was the hardest thing that he's ever had to do. So he leads other programs connected to basketball that allow more students to get involved and in different ways. So I created the sports media group, which allowed the kids that got cut to still be involved with basketball. To make a long story short, the kids that got cut went from being depressed to the most popular kids in the school because now they're covering the games, they're taking the pictures, they're writing the articles. And these young kids did so well that they got to cover the Geico National event that we had here at Christ the King. 
When it comes down to it, both Coach DeLuca and Principal Arbitello try to be more than coaches to their players. They teach them about the sport, but also offer them help through certain paths of life. I think people think that like coaching is my passion, but if coaching was my passion, and I had to come to terms with this also, then I probably would have tried to go to college and maybe the NBA. Teaching has always been my passion. When I sat in, in, in a class and I started to teach, like it was the happiest I ever been. And Arbitello's effort and passion for educating does not go unnoticed. Uh, his leadership, it's made me see life in a different way because he always leads us, he always tells us right from wrong. High school junior Matthew D'Augustine is a guard on the boys varsity team and says Arbitello has taught him more than just the game. He's always trying to help us become better people, even outside of basketball. Unlike some players, Matthew has aspirations of pursuing a career in physical therapy, should basketball not pan out. However, like many other young players, he does not consider himself completely prepared to step away from the sport, should the time come. Nah, I play basketball seven days a week. Like, I can't just stop. I don't know. Although a natural reaction, it is the responsibility of coaches like Joe DeLuca and Principal Arbitello to prepare some of their players to face this reality, one that, unfortunately, will hit some harder than others. Once again, Coach DeLuca. They don't realize it until they're a little older, so I always tease them, like, you're going to call me when you're, like, 22, 23, and be like, Coach Joe, you were right. And those phone calls are fun. I try to be. I try to be a role model. I really do. Um, I've had great role models from the basketball world in my life that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't replace them. I just hope that when one of my players is 36, they speak about me this way because, you know, I ask them to run through a wall, but I'm also the guy that's willing to try to loosen the wall up a little bit and hit it first for them. Principal Arbitello shared the same sentiment in regards to his players and how he tries to lead them. My passion is to teach and be around young people and help them. With each new generation of young athletes comes a new set of players from a different background sharing the same dream. Unfortunately, not every player will be able to chase that dream to reality, and that's where the guidance of coaches come off the bench and into play. For WRHU and the Long Island Advocate, I'm Ronnie Gonzalez. All right, you're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM, WRHU, 17 past the hour. Danny, Sabelle, and Amelia, thank you so much, Ronnie, for that feature about court to coaches, how coaches can impact players, even if they don't become pro athletes. And before we move on to the next feature, you know, we were talking off the air about some shows we were interested in. Uh, Amelia, you were talking about White Lotus. Yes, so it's definitely a slow burn. Definitely, like... You yeah you have to have patience to watch this show. Some strain. Essentially, the plot of season one and season two is a bunch of rich people go to a resort. Uh, season one's in Hawaii, season two is in Italy, and all of this weird stuff starts happening, and you see their lives like kind of unravel. So it's pretty interesting. What about you, Sibyl? Anything you're watching or want to watch? Yeah, I mean, I've also been watching White Lotus, but I just haven't watched the last episode yet. But I've been watching a bunch of stuff in the meantime, like. I've been watching the Gossip Girl reboot. Um, what else have I been watching? Sort of on HBO Max. Honestly, I've been watching a lot of HBO Max shows now that I think yeah. about it. Yeah, because uh, as we've talked about on the show, Disney Plus, it's not exactly given the goods anymore. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV, personally. I still haven't watched the new season of Big Mouth, still. I've just been so, so busy. But I was telling you guys about that reality show that has everyone excited, mm -hmm. Milf Manor. Um, eight hot moms leave home for the chance to find love with men half their age coming on January 15th, 10, 9 central on TLC. 
I don't know. I'm just I'm intrigued because it reminds me of that scene from Thirty Rock, where um, where they rap, they make it like a joke about um, older women and younger men. I don't know. It's interesting mm-hmm. to me personally. I think it could be. I think it's like cringy, but it also has potential to attract attention because it's like such a dynamic concept. But you know, on a manner with all these dudes, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're moving on to our next feature. This is actually my feature that I did. Uh, this was, the, let me just tell you, the production process on this one was a nightmare. Um, but we got it done. We got it in on time. I didn't show up late to that final. Um, hmm. it, the due date was hit. And it's about a very important topic in the United States. It's on abortion and reproductive rights. So obviously the political aspect of reproductive autonomy has always loomed large in the U.S., especially recently, but it is far more than a policy poker chip. The stakes are rooted at a deeper and more human level of freedom and justice for all Americans, not just those who choose to get abortions or choose to have birth. I took a dive into the narratives around specifically abortion and where the country is in this post-Dob moment. I spoke to people across the reproductive autonomy aisle from activists to midwives. Uh, Hope you like it. This is my feature after Dobbs, you're listening to 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. Born into a large family in a conservative pocket of Washington State, current Yale English PhD student Alana Edmondson found out she was pregnant at just 21. It wasn't an outcome she or her partner saw coming. She only found out as soon as she did, approximately six weeks in, because she took a pregnancy test on a whim at a house party. Because one of my friends, like, kind of <laughs> was like, you're definitely pregnant, take a pregnancy test. I took it at a house party and was like, haha, so crazy, it's uh, positive. And I went outside and called my boyfriend and he just said, and hung up the phone. Though she knew she couldn't be a mother, Alana felt conflicted over what to do about her pregnancy. A family friend sent her to a local crisis pregnancy center, but the counselor there was only advocating for her to keep the child. Ultimately, she got an abortion in a Seattle Planned Parenthood. The procedure was smooth, efficient, and satisfying for her. You know, I took the medication to um, dilate my cervix and to calm my nerves. And, you know, they gave me 20 minutes to let it kick in and then, you know, took me back. It was very pleasant. It was mildly painful. Yeah, I walked out of there feeling like empty in the best way. Alana had her first abortion in 2010. Stories like hers, where the best decision is made in the end, can't happen everywhere anymore. Abortion restrictions snapping into place after the fall of Roe v. Wade have seen to that. If a woman found out today she was pregnant when Alana did, six weeks, she would not be able to get a legal abortion in a minimum of 12 states. As a pro-choice activist today, Alana is distraught by what has begun happening across the country. Women were being, you know, turned away. Women weren't having, you know, needed a life-saving procedure that would also require them to no longer be pregnant, that they were, you know, being held for hours and hours on the brink of death while like the hospital legal team decided whether or not they could get sued by the state for um, helping a woman terminate a pregnancy despite the fact that her life was in danger. 
Alongside her outrage, she's also noticed women wake up to the reality of what it actually means to outlaw abortion with no exceptions. And I saw a lot of comments from a lot of women that were like, they would never do that. Why would a hospital ever do something like that? Of course there's an exception. And it's like, no, there really isn't. Navigating the realities of a post-Roe America requires the hindsight of history to assess the present. Dr. Lena Murillo is an assistant professor in gender, women's and sexuality studies, and history at the University of Iowa. She sees things settling into what the country was pre-Roe. Borders have again become a key aspect in maintaining full reproductive rights. We're in what I'm calling borderlands of care, right? So there are interior borders in our nation where there are places where I am a full um, human with rights over my body. And there are states, literally, I can crop, you know, drive into another state where I'm no longer a full um, citizen. A Society of Family Planning survey in October of 2022 found that legal abortions fell nationally by 6%. That equates to about 10,000 less than usual. Abortions fell to basically zero in the states where abortion was outlawed. An abortion rose by about 12,000 in the states. It remains legal. The borderlands of care, as Maria puts it, have been a true shock to the system. Despite this, technological advancements have broadened access to contraception in ways that even the fall of Roe cannot stymie. Especially during the pandemic, telehealth became a boon to abortion medication regardless of residency. So one of the things that's been really revolutionary for abortion access is medication abortion. Um, which is a pill, it's two pills that people can take. During the pandemic, the federal government actually made it so that you could get those pills at home. Um, and that revolutionized abortion care. If you're able to um, access abortion medication before your, you know, generally before your 10th or 11th week of pregnancy, um, you can use abortion medication. And that is the majority of the kinds of abortions that people get um, is, is early on in their, in their pregnancy. Activists have pounced on these resources post-Roe to help women nationwide. Amelia Bono is the founder of Shout Your Abortion. It's a movement aiming to normalize abortion and elevate avenues of reproductive rights. Her organization prioritized spreading awareness about prominent abortion pills like mefepristone and misoprostol. These drugs are something that you can get in your mailbox, even if there is an abortion ban in your state. And there may be legal risk in doing that. And we definitely want people to know what their local laws are and find resources in order to mitigate that risk. But fundamentally, these drugs are are the reason why like we're never going back because it's it's technology that didn't exist in the time before Roe. Hard medication isn't the only counter to new reproductive realities on the ground. Jamara Amani is a Florida-based community midwife and director of the Southern Birth Justice Network. Her organization seeks to broaden midwife care to marginalized communities in the South, providing training for doulas, which are non-medical coaches and guides for pregnant women, 
has become a huge focus of theirs in recent months. Oh, it has really increased this year since the um, Dobbs decision is the request and demand for abortion doula training, which has always been a part of our framework as to how we train doulas, because we believe in the full spectrum model of care, which means that people should have access to full, comprehensive reproductive health information and services at every point of the reproductive cycle. Though for Jamara and other midwives, particularly in the Black Belt, providing care has been made difficult even before Dobbs was decided, with midwives being such an important resource for those who are disproportionately impacted by abortion restrictions. The fact that they continue to face legal obstacles is a huge challenge. Many of the laws, the way they're written, midwives cannot practice to the full scope of their skills. And um, in some cases, um, for example, Georgia, North Carolina, states with really high mortality rates have restrictions on midwifery where people cannot um, even go to a midwife for their prenatal um, care or their birth care. The type of care offered by midwives while never receiving that much attention nationally, is especially crucial for those that they serve in this post-Roe moment, those who historically have been vulnerable to abuse or obstetric violence in hospitals. It's a fact only exacerbated by the uncertainty surrounding how hospitals across the country can or cannot tend to those who need reproductive care. What I think is really vital to me as a midwife, what I see and what I saw right after the Dobbs decision, was that there was a lot of fear in the families that I serve. Primarily people come to me already having a positive uh, pregnancy test and the majority of them are, you know, with the intention of keeping their babies and wanting to either have a home birth or deliver in a birth center. Um, they don't want a hospital-based experience, largely because of uh, either experience with poor treatment in a hospital or fear of that. The more limited options for reproductive care are only fueling that fear, especially for those who are seeking an abortion. Given that the average abortion patient is poor, and many states where it's illegal are in the same region, the Deep South, abortion deserts still cover large swaths of the country. It's no doubt the ultimate win for the anti-choice movement to see the issue of abortion punted back to the states, but that win isn't one that could be followed up easily. Florida State sociology professor and author of Abortion Politics, Mass Media, and Social Movements in America, Dr. Dina Rollinger, sees this as an issue for conservatives. With support for Roe having long polled north of 60%, the pro-choice movement has all the momentum and urgency, not the other way around. And the problem, honestly, for Republicans is the problem of winning. So once you win on an issue, which is this is a pretty decisive win, how do you continue to mobilize people around this cause? And what we've seen is, you know, some Republicans and some, um, you know, and independents, some independents are very uncomfortable with the notion that access will be something that is not available in some states or potentially throughout the U.S. In the midterms, voters decisively supported a woman's right to choose. With abortion on six ballot initiatives that sought to either restrict or protect its access, Democrats, independents, and moderate Republicans alike all voted to ensure that the restrictions failed and the protections passed. But with a polarized electorate and a divided government in Washington, 
Rollinger predicts that the issue will be on the table going forward to keep voters in line. My sort of cynical take is that maybe that's a part of the play for 2024, that if if you can mobilize young voters around things like reproductive rights, it certainly behooves them to show, yes, we can protect rights for the LGBTQ plus community, but these rights are still outstanding and Democrats and, and independents and moderate Republicans who want to see Roe back will have to come out and vote for Democrats in 2024. But among activists and providers, the fight for equitable access to resources and information continues even when there is no election in November. For Amelia, it's about making it known that abortion isn't something that should have a stigma attached. I think that abortion being framed as like a gendered issue, as an individual issue, as a private issue, that those things were all, that was a miscalculation from our side. Um, I think that people really need to start thinking about this as something that is a fundamental human rights issue, is an economic justice issue, a racial justice issue that affects all of us. Um, and that like, in order to get on the right side of this legislatively, it's going to take broad participation and not like just a siloed, you know, feminist movement um, advocating for this. Amelia also believes that the wind in the sails of the pro-choice movement is fragile, especially with bans already in place and the Supreme Court's six to three conservative supermajority. When decisions do come down or ballots are cast, she's fearful of any other erosion of rights. Abortion access is not safe in blue states, even if it is enshrined in your state constitution. I mean, we're a few bad elections away from Republicans putting forth a, a federal abortion ban. There's just no question that that is the long game here. I mean, if you look at what was laid out in, in Dobbs, like they're just getting started. Meanwhile, for Jamara and the Southern Birth Justice Network, it's about correcting what they see as a massive misunderstanding among politicians, that laws surrounding reproductive rights aren't based upon human rights. In her own clients, many of those who have come to Jamara before for birth are now seeking assistance with an abortion. There is no binary between those who get abortions and those who choose to give birth. The, the same services, whether it's abortion or home birth, are, are needed in the same human body. Like this isn't like there's a group of people over here having abortions and there's another group of people over here having um, giving birth. This is happening in the same body, in the same life cycle. That concept circles back to Alana Edmondson. In 2017, as a 28-year-old, she found out she was pregnant again. Though she could have supported the child and she has always wanted to become a mother, she got another abortion in the same Seattle Planned Parenthood. This time, however, it was a much more gut-wrenching decision. My first abortion was very much, I was rejoicing afterwards. My second abortion, I was, I think I, I mean, I mourned for like six months or something, at least six months. It was sad. I really loved the person that I was with. Um, and I was proud that I was able to, you know, financially probably be able to do it. You know, I was already like on the way to accomplishing my dream, which was to, you know, get like my PhD from an IV. Now at 34, nearing the end of her studies, Alana's dream is closer than ever to reality. She credits her ability to have an abortion as a reason why she was able to set herself up for success despite initial setbacks in pursuing a college education. You know, I was a great student until I found out that my parents wouldn't co-sign for a loan. 
for me to go to university. So from that point, I kind of was just like, okay, I have to figure out how to make this happen for myself. So I guess one of the first decisions that I made towards the life that I wanted for myself was choosing to have an abortion. And though she had to delay another dream, motherhood, for that to happen, she does not intend to delay much longer. No, I'd like to have a kid like in the next two years for sure. In terms of bodily autonomy, the power to choose is in a fractured place as we enter 2023. But for tens of millions of Americans, the power and freedom of choice is worth fighting and voting for. For WRHU, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. You are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM WRHU, our final show of the semester, not just for Monday, for the semester. It's Danny, Sibyl, and Emilio. You already know who it is. And, you know, we uh, we just got done with our first real block of two features from Vice Dean Murillo's class. A big shout out to Vice Dean Murillo for all he's done for the show this semester. Uh, but moving forward, uh, we're getting into getting into you know the usual national politics mini segment here on the morning wake up call, and it has to do with the fact that today is a huge day for the select January sixth committee in Congress before the current Congress expires and the new Congress takes their seats. Amelia, and this is the, this is a big day for their operations and their mission. What is going on with January sixth's committee? Today, House Select January 6th Committee will take up criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump. These referrals will be on at least three charges, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, the crime of insurrection, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. The referrals will be voted during what's probably the last public meeting of the panel. The referrals will be in letter form sent to the Justice Department, making its case for prosecution. Referrals do not carry any legal weight, so the DOJ does not have to do anything. Insurrection is a pretty rarely prosecuted crime, let alone a crime prosecuted against a former president. On Truth Social, Donald Trump slammed the committee in several posts. Here's probably the most poignant... Uh, Republicans and patriots all over the land must stand strong and united against the thugs and scoundrels of the unselect committee. It will be a dark period in American history, but with darkness comes light. So, obviously very tense. Uh, Donald Trump's been dealing with a lot of bad news lately, this being one of the major things going against him, the other being his taxes falling into the hands of the Democratic committee sent to investigate them. And... I think the result will be that they will have some criminal referrals, as you mentioned, Amelia, but is Merrick Garland really that guy who is going to make a move? Because we have been speculating, and by we I mean many observers, that Trump's third presidential run in many ways is him trying to avoid indictment or kick that can down the road. Is this going to be where the indictment comes from? Or is it going to come from the case against his organization? Or will it come for his actions with classified documents? The issue is there are so many avenues for him to be in some serious legal trouble. And for years, ever since he assumed the presidency, he's been dealing with these investigations, whether it was the Russia probe or the Ukraine impeachment or the things right after January 6th. But now 
it feels like he has three real issues closing in on him, and the fourth, really, if you count his taxes. So is Merrick Garland that guy? Is he going to make the move? I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on what will actually come of this. Obviously, the committee, once it does its thing, it'll go away. It won't be a factor. Many of the members on it won't even be in the next Congress. So do you, either of you have any thoughts on what will actually happen beyond the committee maybe saying that Trump should be charged? with anything um you know i think it's i think it's kind of hard to say um i don't i don't really think anything will come of it unfortunately um as we've talked about before donald trump is just really a very rich and powerful person so i don't know but yeah it is going to be interesting to see which which of these avenues like you mentioned danny does take him down but this one i'm not too sure about sibyl yeah i'm i'm with amelia like it just seems like there might we might need something bigger, believe it or not, um, to take someone as powerful as Donald Trump down. Um, and he has, and many Republicans as well, have discredited the committee as political theater, even though it's bipartisan. Clearly, that's not enough in that Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger are not actual Republicans. But their political philosophies are obviously conservative. They just put country over party. Is country over party an anti-Republican ideal in some ways? I feel like I was listening to um, State of the Union on CNN. uh, Jake Tapper was interviewing uh, outgoing Republican Senator Pat Toomey, if you recall. Um, Mm -hmm. John Fetterman won the election for his seat, Fetterman a Democrat, over Dr. Oz in Amelia's home state of Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. So he was telling Jake Tapper, he said, the Republican Party should not be beholden to any one man. Now, gee, I wonder who that one man could be. Hmm. You know, I'm having trouble thinking. Bit of a head scratcher. I know, right? I just, who? Who is that one man that the Republican Party shouldn't be beholden to? I don't know. I don't know who he's talking about. I don't know who he could be referring to. But that message, it goes into the new Congress where you don't have the presumptive well, one of the presumptive nominees really in the spotlight. He's desperately trying to make news. Remember that NFT announcement the other yeah. day? That's that was his major announcement. He's struggling to make headlines because I think the media and you could call them biased to whatever you want. But I think no matter their bias, I think they're largely done with him. Yeah. In a way, yeah. they're done giving him free airtime because he's not a politician anymore. He's a former politician. And I think that mentality will not help him going forward, especially if he continues to sit on his hands and deal with these bad headlines and possibly be be on the receiving end of an indictment and deal with the fact that Ron DeSantis, despite doing nothing, nothing in terms of running for president, is getting more attention. And he's beating Trump in many polls now. Before it was just a trickle of polls. Now it's a tsunami of polls. So Donald Trump not in a great political position at this moment. But hey, He's been in worse, and he somehow made it out. So never count out his political charisma and brand because it's very strong. We will not stop talking about Trump necessarily going forward. We have an interview with an NPR correspondent about something he did during his presidency that maybe went a little bit under the radar, but it still merits discussion. It has to do with the census. You're listening to 88.7 FM WRHU. All right, so that was I'm Good slash Blue, uh, the BB Rexa remix. BB Rexa, one of my favorites. And Olivia Rodrigo's Deja Vu. If you're wondering the song choice, I was explaining my 4D chess logic to 
Amelia and Sibyl off the air that we were talking about Trump dealing with issues politically. Deja vu. It's happened a lot over the last five years. And blue, uh, the color of the Democratic Party, the party who has uh, largely been opposed to Trump. So you can't say I don't think through the songs I play. But if you're just tuning in, it's 47 past the hour. Danny, Sibyl, and Amelia on the morning wake-up call. Our final morning wake-up call of the semester. It's hard to believe, but we're finally here. It's been a long, long, long winding road, but, you know, it had to come to an end eventually, but we're not quite done yet. Still an hour and change going forward, but I promise we talk about something that happened during Trump's presidency that went a little bit under the radar, and here's the issue that was slipped under the rug. It's the census. According to those in the civil service, former President Trump carried out a, quote, unprecedented amount of interference with it. With the lame duck session of Congress nearing its end, Democratic Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii pushed a bill through with the hopes that the once-a-decade tally will be better managed in the future. Here to discuss the situation with us on Capitol Hill is NPR correspondent from Washington, D.C., Hanzi Lo Wong. Hanzi, welcome to the Morning Wake Up Call. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Danny. Good morning to you. Uh, so what about the census in recent years, or specifically in 2020, made it such a political issue that allowed Trump to interfere with it? Well, to be clear, the census is always a political issue because it is part of the Constitution, a requirement set by the framers that once every 10 years, there's a count of the country's population. Um, at the very beginning, it wasn't every person in the, in, the, in the country, but now it is every person living in the country. Those numbers are used to determine how many seats in Congress each state gets, specifically the House of Representatives, and that determines how many electoral college votes each state gets. So inherently, it's political. But what happened during former President Donald Trump's administration is that what usually is a uh, considered a nonpartisan process where you have Democrats and Republicans all on the same page in terms of getting an accurate and complete count and really deferring in a lot of ways to the Census Bureau, which is made up of mostly career civil servants, um, many statisticians, demographers, technical folks who spend their careers focusing on how to produce accurate, complete statistics. The Trump administration did multiple things to uh, question and uh, really ignore the expertise of the career civil servants and also actively uh, upended the headcount. Uh, most notably, people might remember that the Trump administration failed, tried and failed to add a question asking about U.S. citizenship status to the census forms. There was no citizenship question on the census forms. Ultimately, the Supreme Court blocked the Trump administration's efforts. And it's a kind of question that Census Bureau of experts have warned for decades to not add to census forms. Uh, it did a test before this 2020 census, and it showed that adding that kind of question would have likely discourage a lot of households with Latinos and Asian Americans from participating in the census. And that goes against the, the Census Bureau's mission to count every person living in the country. And beyond that, uh, during the census, you know, it, it was upended uh, like many things in 2020 by COVID-19, but it was also upended by the Trump administration's efforts to end counting early. Uh, counting was delayed and there were a lot of concerns from the Trump administration to begin with to extend counting to make sure everyone was counted during a major public health crisis. And then uh, towards the final months of that scheduled counting, the Trump administration pushed to end it early. And so it put at risk a lot of households 
uh, from from not being included in the count in the end. And I could go on, but those are the kind of the two main examples of the Trump administration really uh, interfering in ways that we had not seen from previous administrations. And what are the provisions outlined in Senator Schatz's bill to address what happened under Trump? There are a number of provisions here. Um, so one, one of the main things is that uh, Senator Schatz's bill, as well as a bill that passed in the U.S. House, um, have this provision that would limit any future administration from appointing a total of four political appointees at the Census Bureau. And that would include the head of the Census Bureau, the Census Bureau director. And four, I don't know, it might sound a lot if you're not familiar with the Census Bureau, but uh, during the Trump administration, uh, there was a lot more than four. Uh, there, I was tracking that there were four additional uh, Census Bureau appointees uh, in addition to the uh, Census Bureau directors, in addition to uh, the head of Congressional Affairs, someone in, in terms of uh, communication, four more in addition to those um, I think there may be another political appointee position I may be remembering, but there were four that raised a lot of eyebrows because they had no obvious qualifications to be added to the top ranks of the Census Bureau, which, again, is a mostly career civil servant run organization. Um, again, a lot of statisticians. You got economists, you got demographers, you got uh, survey designers, folks with very technical expertise working there and uh, not used to having so many political appointees. Uh, with with no real way of, uh, no real experience to talk about, and who were asking um, a lot of unusual questions in the middle of a census, which is the most, uh, it's just the, the busiest time, the it is the project of the Census Bureau, uh, and again, during a pandemic. And so this would limit a future, a future administration from putting in, uh, essentially at this point, just an unlimited number of political appointees. It would also create uh, additional advisory committees uh, of outside advisors uh, that would help provide um, feedback to the Census Bureau, as well as help keep track of various things, including statistical quality, the, the quality of the actual uh, data that the Census Bureau puts out. And uh, there would also be uh, requirements to report out uh, life cycle cost of the census uh, in earlier years before a census year. This is a way uh, Senator Schatz said uh, allow Congress to have kind of a, a sense going into a census what it would actually cost to conduct uh, a census that the Census Bureau believes uh, would be kind of a full, robust program. Oftentimes, uh, as we get closer to a census year, a lot of things could come up and Congress may not necessarily pull, may not necessarily approve the full funding that Congress, um, that the Census Bureau has asked for. And there could be political reasons to that. It could be just Congress doesn't understand what's needed. And Senator Schatz's bill uh, would provide kind of early preview and, and set kind of a, a marker of uh, going into a census, what the Census Bureau has in mind. Um, just to give you an example, going into the 2020 census, the Census Bureau was planning to do a number of test runs of the census in different parts of the country to get a sense of, you know, what is it like to conduct, uh, what would it be like to conduct a 2020 census before 2020 in a predominantly Spanish-speaking community, in a rural community. And those are two tests that were ultimately canceled because there was not enough funding. 
If you're just now tuning in to the morning wake-up call, we're speaking to NPR correspondent Han Si Lo Wong about the U.S. Census. How likely is Schatz's bill or similar legislation to pass in this Congress or the next Congress? Not likely at all. Uh, it's December 19th, and this is a, a lame duck Congress. Um, and uh, Senator Schatz introduced this bill last week with the expectation that it was really going nowhere. There's no time for it to go through a committee, uh, let alone the House floor for a vote. And so this, uh, Senator Schatz says, was a way to, to quote, lay a marker. And Senator Schatz said that he was planning to reintroduce this bill. And, uh, and the big question then is, uh, you know, bills don't become laws until you have versions in both the House and the Senate usually. So uh, it's unclear what's going to happen in the House, uh, which is set to be in Republican hands. Uh, Senate will still be in Democratic hands. And generally speaking, these types of bills to uh, that would address potential future interference with the census uh, in 2030, these types of bills have been introduced by Democrats so far, though, what I've been tracking. And so um, it's unclear exactly how far uh, Senator Schatz's bill would go, even if it were to be introduced again next uh, next year in the new Congress. Um, that is Senator Schatz's plan. And so it, it is a big question right now, uh, what role Congress uh, will play in these very critical years uh, ahead of a census. You know, most people don't think about a census until it is the year of the census, which will next will be in 2030, but it actually takes more than a decade of planning to get account of every person living in the country. And let's not forget, it's um, also a major challenge, uh, not, not just to, you know, just think about that, trying to count every person in the country, but we know for sure that there is a major challenge facing the Census Bureau as it has faced for many decades, which is there's persistent a persistent problem here, which is that the U.S. Census undercounts people of color while overcounting people who identify as white and not Latino. And so what that means is that built into this data, these numbers that we use to determine political representation, as well as federal funding, built into these numbers is racial and ethnic inequities that the country has lived with for decades. And that means that communities around the country are not getting their fair share of political representation and federal funding, not to mention all the other ways that census data are used for research, this is you know science research, health research, um, and also planning by your local political leaders, uh, whether they're thinking about, do we need uh, a new school? Do we need a new supermarket? Business leaders are, are using this data to make projections about what their communities will look like in the next decade. And if we don't have accurate numbers representing every person living in the country, we really don't know. Uh, we're really making perhaps misguided, misinformed decisions. Once again, that was NPR correspondent Hansi Lo Wan talking to us about a proposal on the table, however likely it is to pass, to fix what was a chaotic census year in 2020. Thank you again so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right. Have a good rest of your day. You too. All right, guys. So we are at the end of our final seven o'clock hour, which was something that wasn't a thing when we started the show in the, in in September, which is crazy to think about in a way. Wow. We, yeah. We've come so far. We've actually extended the show to a second hour, and you got and you always know that that second hour you're hitting the ground running. So it's gonna be it's gonna be good. A lot more 
of us chatting in the second hour, a lot more exciting discussions in the second hour between your hosts, and um, a really, really interesting story that we've talked about in the past, but we're excited to touch on it again, and of course, our final end segment going over the best discussions we've had on the show all semester long. You do not want to miss a second hour. Do not turn that dial. You are listening to 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. This is the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. WWRHU. Hempstead. You discovered, you discovered a cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. WWRHU. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM. Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. If you're still with us, thank you for just tuning in. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, the Monday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call, our final hour of morning show all semester long, so you don't want to miss this climactic finale. We're talking Long Island life, national news, international issues. I'm your host, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Sabir Rateau and Emilia Sack. In the second hour, it's going to be a special segment at the end, as I've said before, but also we're going to talk about what happened on Twitter with Elon Musk's, Elon Musk's self-poll about whether he should stay on top of the platform. There's also some talk about cryptocurrency. So in terms of technology, don't want to leave in the next 30 minutes. Hour two, here we go. You guys ready to rock? Yes, let's Feel, do it. Feeling energetic? All right, well, we'll start with uh, future ABC uh, meteorologist Amelia Sack giving us the climate report in the sky. So, Amelia, whenever you're ready. So, for today's weather forecast, it's currently 34 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, it's sunny. The rest of the day should be 36 degrees with an expected high of 39 degrees during the day and a low of 30 in the evening. Yes, you might be feeling the holiday spirit, but not without the feeling of the frosty air. So stay warm, unless, of course, you enjoy the cold. Who enjoys the cold? I think... Uh, not too many people. Yeah, you know, I think... Did we talk about this where people on the West Coast, they'd rather... Or in the South, they'd rather be hot than cold, and up here, you'd rather be cold than hot? I think so. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I'd rather be cold than hot, personally. Um, yeah, me too. I'd, I, I hate being can, very hot. Because you can put on more and more layers, but yeah. you can only take yeah, off so no. many yeah, especially articles of clothing. There's that weird time in the fall where you walk into a room and it's cold outside, but it's warm in the room. Uh-huh. So you get hit with that heat wave and you start taking off your layers and you're still hot, even though you just removed yeah. all your clothing. And then by the time you get out of class, it's like warm outside. Yeah, you're like, and how I have a jacket. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Your temperature is just so, so flexible and it's annoying. But anyways, uh, five more things you need to know. The last five things you need to know, according to Sibyl Rateau. So these must be the most important headlines ever, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'll let you give them out. So 
Here we go. News headlines. Let's go. The Vatican has stripped high-profile Catholic leader and anti-abortion activist Frank Pavone of priesthood in the wake of the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Mexico is building a $15 billion train line through the heart of ancient Maya civilization. This initiative will be one of the largest and most controversial infrastructure projects in the country's history. Henry, Henry Cavill will no longer return as Superman in the future DC movies. Both his cameos and Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman have been cut from the flash. Today is National Hard Candy Day, so happy National Hard Candy Day to those who celebrate. And same with Hanukkah, because tonight will be the second night of Hanukkah. Yes, happy holidays to all who are celebrating, and happy early holidays to those uh, who will be celebrating Christmas next week. Um, I can't believe that it's already the holidays. It doesn't feel like it. Does it feel like it to you guys? No. No? No. I don't know. I, usually usually I like prepare for the holidays by watching like Christmas movies and like Christmas episodes of like nostalgic TV shows. But this, this year I haven't really done that. Yeah, no, me neither. And um, the most holiday-y I felt was when I went into the city the other day, and this was such a main character moment. I walked around <laughs> Chris, uh, New York City at Christmas time with my AirPods in, listening to Christmas music, walking past the Macy's and the Rockefeller Center. It felt very Christmassy. And I went to the Macy's store yesterday, and I nice. saw they just opened up a Toys R Us on the seventh floor. Oh my gosh, it's back! Yeah, it's back. I never, I never wanted a kid more. Just looking at those little guy, <laughs> little guys and girls playing on the on Garrett's playground. So that was that was okay. You you good, Amelia? Yes, I have a tickle in my throat. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's okay. not going away. It's okay. It's okay. We're fine. We're cool. But yeah, I'm very I'm I'm excited for Christmas. It doesn't feel like it yet, but I'm sure once I get home and I do some Christmas activities with my family, it'll feel mm-hmm. a little bit more like the holiday season. For sure. What sort of like Christmas activities? Um, we go see Christmas lights. Oh, that's fine. And then we watch like the same Christmas movie every year. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, moving on from the holidays, um, our favorite rich man, Elon Musk, he did something crazy the other day. Or by the other day, I mean yesterday. So after receiving some blowback over suspending the accounts of journalists who doxed his location, for those of you who don't know what that means, it may means he it means he they tweeted his plane coordinates route, whatever, even though that is actually legal under U.S. law. Elon Musk done what he has always done when a choice presents itself to him. He did a Twitter poll. His latest poll asked users if he should step down from Twitter, and he promised to abide by the results of the poll. And the results are in, guys. The results ended, I think, at exactly 7 a.m. 57% of users want him to step down, approximately. More than half of the 17.5 million who voted want Elon Musk gone. So there are two questions with this just these are just you know these are just personal questions whether you feel one way or not first of all do you think he actually meant this and do you think he actually will step down i oh jinx (laughs) yeah Uh, like for some weird reason i couldn't i feel like he would pull like a fast one and actually step down i don't know why i you know like something like you know what I mean? Like something just tells me he would like just be like, well, okay. 
Well, I want to add context to this as well. He did a poll about should he reinstate those journalists he suspended. He did a poll with four options. I think it was like now, short time, like in a week or whatever. He gave like four options. Mm -hmm. The majority voted to bring them back immediately. Yeah. Then he scrapped that poll, made it just now or later, and did it again. Same result. I think he's starting yeah, to feel, feel personally like, that he's not popular. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he put that poll out hoping for validation that he should maintain his position and then didn't get that. On top of the polls he already put out regarding what he should do about the journalists, because clearly that was right. unpopular. Yeah. You can't be the advocate of free speech and then censor journalists on Twitter. Yeah, yeah that's not wild. how it works. You guys just said the same thing. You guys are in sync today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think he'll do it. I actually think he'll step down because he's got a, he's not a dumb guy. Like he yeah. knows, he, he knows that the company is going underwater under his leadership. And I don't think he wants to be responsible for that. He thought he was going to, and, and we've said this before, he thought he was going to walk in, change the culture with his force of personality. He was making huge headway in at least right wing circles with the whole Twitter files thing, but it hasn't shown that much spectacle like clearly there was democratic debate behind the scenes about what to put on twitter and what not to mm -hmm. i think if anything it shows that the platform is conscious of what it it will promote and what it won't um but in terms of what we've seen since musk took over obviously the tremendous rise in hate speech um the suspension of the journalists uh the the layoffs that have rocked the company financially yeah. and you know corporately and the fact that people are actually, for the first time, I think in a long time, giving other platforms a chance. And he also, or whether this was him or not, Twitter also said that they would not allow the promotion of other platforms on Twitter. So you can't say, follow me on Facebook or follow me on Mastodon or follow me on Instagram in a, either a bio or a post. And then that was taken down by Twitter support. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's it's. The perfect word for it is neurotic. Yeah. His leadership mm -hmm. has been neurotic. It has been mercurial in the sense that it's back and forth, kind of crazy, ad hoc. I don't know what to make of it, but if this is actually how he steps down, it would be hilarious, but yeah. I also think it's perfectly on brand for someone like Elon Musk. True. It is. Yeah. Do you have any other... I know we've talked about Twitter before, and we'll talk about it again, but do you have any other thoughts? Because the fact that this... I, it, was, it looked like it was going to be yes for a while. I was waiting to talk about this till the second hour because I was following this. Oh, Amelia's got another tickle. <laughs> you want to take five? You're good? No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. That, that got rid of it? I think maybe. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, because I, uh, I, I just I, I want him to go so bad. I think he's making a fool of himself. Yeah. And he's yeah. pandering to I don't even know what constituency at this point. Clearly, the army of free speech loving people he had he thought he had on twitter didn't materialize to keep his job if that's what he's really that's what he's really going for mm -hmm. and uh yeah so elon he might be done only a couple who lasted longer him or liz truss um i don't know i don't know either i think it's actually close yeah how long did let's look this up liz truss how long did she last um she was prime minister for a short amount of time. Then okay, the sixth of September to the twenty fifth of October. Oh, uh, and he. So that's like a little over a month. Uh, yeah, a little over a month. <clears throat> um, 
when did he become CEO of Twitter? Looking at his bio, hmm. This is actually really interesting, really interesting question because uh, owner of Twitter. When did he buy it? He made. I think he might have been longer. Yeah, yeah. When did because he didn't buy it over the summer. He bought it in the fall, right? Or the, there was like that whole thing about. I think he did buy it. In the, when did Elon? Buy he it? bought it in April. Concluded in October twenty seventh. Okay. So, mm-hmm. October, yeah, he lasted longer. Yeah. But not that, that much longer than a politician in one of the world's premier democracies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah. So, if he actually steps down, it'll be around that short. But moving on from one tech craziness to another tech craziness, we, we've all been following the collapse of cryptocurrency after the founder of FTX has been... It caught up in a lot of criminal trouble, and our very own Nicholas Cavalmachia, someone who has made tremendous strides in the morning show department this semester, has an interview for us about the drama surrounding FTX and the ensuing controversy. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM Radio, Hofstra University, and it this it, it pains me to hear more about this crypto thing because it makes me, it just it makes me it's wild how this guy had such a crazy rise and fall, but also it continues the next. Warren Buffett curse because whoever is on a magazine that says you're the next Warren Buffett, you're never the next Warren Buffett, and that's clearly what happened here. But Nicholas Cavellamachia has more. Nicholas Cavellamachia here with Anthony Sabino, an attorney whose expertise includes complex securities fraud and white collar crime cases. Mr. Sabino, thank you so much for being with me today. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Nick. So. We have been going back and forth about FTX and its bankruptcy. We've got $73 million donated to the Democratic and Republican political parties. It's a big case that's been going on. So can you just get a little bit more involved and tell me exactly what's happening? Sure. The two most recent developments are as follows, and they're very much interconnected. Uh, The United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, filed a criminal indictment which was unsealed uh, against Mr. Samuel Bankman Fried. Again, it doesn't name the company, but names SBF individually, charging him with various counts of mail and wire fraud, securities fraud, and also the very last count, count eight, is uh, a, uh, an allegation that he made criminal violations of the campaign finance law. Uh, and again, the document itself is not all that informative, informative, Nicholas, because it's wrapped in the turgid language that's necessary in criminal indictments in the sense that uh, it's basically a recitation of the statutes violated. So it doesn't give you a lot of the who's, what's, where's. But that last, uh, the, or I should say, rather, the opening parts were what would be expected. In the cases of, of securities fraud, white-collar crime, the government always charges mail and wire fraud because all these schemes have to be taken up by some means of telecommunications these days email texts uh, uh, the telephone uh, the securities fraud count was expected again because of the various investors who had put their money into FTX as well as the customer accounts for trading on that same platform but the campaign finance uh, count was a little bit of a, of a difference maker because again it, it charges SBF with violating the campaign finance law not reporting donations or hiding them in different amounts and so on and so forth so again there's going to be a lot to be said about him but what I find really interesting as a citizen is the fact that there's going to be a lot of embarrassed faces in Washington, D.C., because, again, while SBF allegedly has violated campaign, campaign finance laws, the real question now is, okay, the persons, the politicians to whom he made those donations. So that is going to be 
put, put a lot of egg on various people's faces. The second and far more informative document was the 28-page complaint that was filed by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And, Nicholas, just to show you the difference, the criminal indictment involves allegations of criminal behavior and therefore means significant prison time, forfeiture of assets, and so forth against SBF if he's convicted. The SEC complaint, on the other hand, is a purely civil matter, basically where the SEC is re seeking to recover money, penalties, and so forth. One of the main things they want to do is bar SBF permanently from any relationship with any publicly held company, any uh, uh, public financial company, any securities firm, broker-dealer, so on and so forth. And that 28-page document is very detailed because it states the allegations with respect to the alleged commingling of customer funds uh, with uh, uh, Bankman Freed's privately held research firm, or trading firm rather called Alameda Research, allegations of misrepresentation to various banks, and banks who had loaned money to FTX, as well as investors, uh, misrepresentations and omissions to customers, so on and so forth. So it really fleshes out all the details with respect to the claims for securities fraud, investor fraud, so on and so forth. So while you can, and these documents are all publicly available on the internet, the SEC website, the U.S. Attorney's website, so on and so forth, as well as other media outlets. So if you want to know the crimes that SBF is charged with, that's the criminal indictment, but if you want to know the who's, what's, where's, that's the SEC complaint. Now, with these complaints that have obviously been arising, Samuel Bankman-Fried has repeatedly made public statements, including a live interview on air leading businesses for a, a news program that he's calling it. Was this wise? I mean, we've also seen that he stepped down after he recently had to give up his crypto exchange files for bankruptcy. So what are we, what are we seeing here exactly? Is this a wise decision from him? Well, with all due respect, SBF made a very foolish decision to go public with his various statements. Again, I listened to a large portion of his interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times. And again, uh, there can be interpretation of his statements to be at least some kind of admission of what, uh, what would constitute negligence, not paying attention to things, so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, when you are uh, possibly, possibly facing criminal charges or even civil charges, as he was at the time, the advice any attorney will give you, Nicholas, is keep your mouth shut. Okay, let your attorneys do all the talking for you. SBF violated that cardinal rule. Now that he has been charged, I hope his new attorneys, whoever they may be, because he's changed attorneys at least once, uh, he will follow their advice and basically say nothing and essentially invoke his right, a Fifth Amendment right, not to incriminate himself. But the bottom line is what things he's already said, as you mentioned, Nicholas, they're on the record. He said, and as they say in the Miranda warnings, they can and will be used against him in a court of law. Now, with all that being said, there are some claims from FTX that and SPF that people are putting into question here. Specifically, what kind of claims are FTX and SBF confronting? You mentioned earlier that they were talking about some crimes that they could face. So might some of them be criminal? And if they're proven, could they involve some jail time? Yes, to all the, all the above. With respect to the criminal indictments, okay, there are there are severe prison sentences attached to all of these allegations. Again, if proven, and again, we have to remember, given the benefit of the doubt, the gentleman in question is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. Uh, the mail and wire fraud uh, counts, as I mentioned earlier, those are 
customary in financial uh, fraud cases, white-collar crime, where basically the government says, okay, you deceived people, you schemed to defraud them, and so therefore you must have used your telephone, your email, your cell phone, whatever to do so. Uh, then there are the securities fraud cases, securities fraud allegations, rather, that, again, you, you lied to, you deceived your investors, people who invested money uh, and put it on the platform, uh, there is an allegation with respect to violation of the commodities law because, again, these cryptocurrencies, Nicholas, as we've come to appreciate, also are sometimes interpreted by the courts as being a commodity. That's a different body of law, but the same essential anti-fraud provisions apply. And as I've already mentioned, the campaign finance law uh, violations and so forth. Uh, now, in terms of the possible prison time, again, it's, an, it's potentially enormous, uh, but f difficult to define at this time. Uh, in the federal uh, court justice system. Uh, prison time is allocated under a very arcane system called the Federal Sentencing Guidelines that basically provides this very complex matrix that looks at the crime, the number of victims, um, the financial damage quantified in terms of dollars, and a plethora of other, uh, other factors. But basically, I would say at the least, at the bare minimum, okay, uh, Mr. S uh, SBF is looking at potentially 20 years at a bare minimum, and it could go up quite beyond that. The, the barometer, if you will, would be the Bernard Madoff situation from 12 years ago, uh, actually, correction, 14 years ago, uh, and where he was sentenced to 140 years in prison. Now, Bernie Madoff was already in his 70s when he was sentenced. He passed away in prison, so he never lived it out. Uh, SBF, if I understand correctly, is about 30 years old, but basically he could very well be looking at the rest of his natural life in behind bars. So now let's take it a little bit back and talk about not just the, co uh, the company with SBF and FTX, of all they've done, but specifically the people who've invested in this, this huge, uh, I would say, fraud for bank bankruptcy. Right. Are there specifically for these investors a recovery time anytime soon? I mean, I know that we've, again, seen millions of dollars given to these uh, p political campaigns and political outputs. But for the people who specifically want their money back, what can we see for them? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bread, bad news during the holiday season, but I have to be brutally honest. And there's no good news here, Nicholas. The bottom line is it's going to take years to unravel this and have a recovery, if any at all. Now, some somewhat optimistic news was given before Congress by Mr. James Ray, who is the current CEO of FTX. He took over at the time it was filed. He was involved in the Enron bankruptcy in terms of recovering assets there. And he made a statement that, uh, if I understood correctly, that they believe there's about $1 billion uh, available, and I would assume that's that's hard cash or sim or cash equivalent assets. That's there, but again, the fraud is estimated to be somewhere in the range of eight billion, maybe more than that. And again, with respect to the investors, it's it, it's 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 incalculable at this point. Uh, essentially, what we're looking at is a years-long process, because what's going to have to happen here is Mr. Ray and other professionals who are managing FTX and bankruptcy have to unravel all these complicated transactions and find out where the money went. And already some of the allegations, for example, in the SEC complaints, say that SBF diverted funds into his own pocket. He bought real estate. Uh, for himself, for family members, for other insiders at FTX, so on and so forth. So they have to find out where the money went. Once you see where the money went, if those were illegitimate transactions, or what we call in bankruptcy law fraudulent conveyances, then you can recover those from the parties that received them and then get that money back in. 
all right, then once you recover that, and that's going to take years, then you figure out who the investors are, okay, and what each of them was legitimately owed, and then figure out what percentage that you're going to be able to give those folks. And again, I think the, the, the template here is the Bernard Madoff case, which uh, with respect to is 14 years old and is still going strong. And again, it took years for the bankruptcy trustee in that case to find out the who's, what's, where's, bring a multitude of lawsuits, okay? The law books are full of cases whereby Mr. Picard, the trustee there, sued the recipients of ill-gotten monies and recovered those funds. And even so, the Bernie Madoff fraud was estimated to be $40 billion. He's distributed about $14 billion back after 14 years. So, again, I, I'm so sorry for the people who invested with FTX, but it, they are literally years away from a recovery. Whatever amount is recovered, if any, and I can't emphasize that enough, if any, is going to be a very small percentage at the initial stage. And again, when, it, when is it actually going to completely be consummated? Uh, heaven only knows. And just for clarification, there are no governmental programs that can bail out these investors for their losses, correct? Sad but true. That is absolutely correct. And the reason for that is the essential distinction between the cryptocurrency platform that FTX provided with respect to, say, a traditional brokerage firm. Again, the Madoff case is illustrative. In the Madoff case, he was running a broker-dealer, which was by law required to be a member of what's called the SIPC, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. And as a broker-dealer, Madoff's operation was a custodian of monies and, and, and stocks that people held in an account. And the way the SIPC law, also known as the Securities Investor Protection Act, works is that in the event of an insolvency of a broker-dealer, traditional broker-dealer, the government can step in and advance up to $250,000 per account holder. And again, the process takes, uh, as I described, where the trustee comes in and then sues and tries to get more money back. However, this is a cryptocurrency uh, trading platform. It is not the traditional broker-dealer. So in terms of what people invested, people would put out there, it's not covered by the same law. So therefore, there's no avenue of recovery for these folks. And maybe, Nicholas, maybe this is the time for Congress to start thinking about, once again, so many issues are going to arise from this case <clears throat> for the future of crypto, for the future of the financial markets. Okay, exactly what is crypto? Okay, what are the boundaries of the SEC's jurisdiction over it? Is it a stock? Is it a bond? Whatever. Is it a commodity which would entail regulation by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission? And also now, do we expand, can we expand, should we expand the protections that are given to customers at a traditional broker-dealer to, to, to give coverage to uh, cryptocurrency platforms and so on and so forth? Very complicated questions for the future that are going to occupy us for many, many years. Well, this is definitely something we will have to wait and see how Congress will respond to this and help us to find more about cryptocurrency platforms and what they are exactly in the coming weeks. However, once again, an attorney whose expertise includes complex securities fraud and white-collar crime cases, none other than Mr. Anthony Sabino. Mr. Anthony Sabino, thank you again for joining me here today. Thank you, Nicholas. It was a pleasure. You are listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 26 past the hour, Danny Sabil. And Amelia on our final Monday show, our final show of the semester. And unfortunately, Nick Costanzo it could not be here due to illness. Um, he is an incredible friend and colleague, the only true freshman member of the department this semester. And he earned his place as one of the uh, members of our team. And 
his report. He wrote it. He gave us cuts for it. Um, so I, I will do the honor of reading it in his place. Um, I can't promise it'll be as good as Nick's usual uh, reading. It, readings usually are, but I will do my best. Are you guys ready for Nick? my Nick impersonation? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, here we go. Um, for the record, uh, we during HVL, we had to tell Nick to lighten up a little bit because he looked very he looked very dour on camera. You know, hmm. he he got it though. He brightened he brightened up, and by by the broadcast time, he usually goes. Here we go. Uh, that bed, I love that bed. Anyway, California utility regulators on Thursday approved changes to the state's booming rooftop solar market that they say will more evenly spread the price of energy and help reduce the state's reliance on fossil fuels in the evening. Here is California Public Utilities Commissioner John Reynolds. This proposed decision is a heavy one, one that many people and coalitions have come together or split apart around. The state has long led the nation in adopting rooftop solar panels, and today more than 1.5 million California homes and other buildings have them. Under a decades-old program, people with solar panels can get paid by the power companies by sharing excess solar energy they don't need, leading some solar homes to pay minimal electric bills. Let us see what Clifford Recht Schaffen, another California Public Utilities Commissioner, has to say about the matter. One of the goals of this decision, which I think we've achieved, is to provide stability and some predictable bill savings that's led to criticism that rooftop solar customers aren't paying their fair share into the rest of the energy grid, while many still rely on for power when the sun goes down. Power rates also include transmission equipment and wildfire pre prevention work, and regulators approve a set amount of money that utilities can recover from customers. And lastly, here is Kathy Fairbanks, the spokesperson for California Clean Energy for All. Well, it looks like- Our coalition didn't back any one solution. What we were advocating for to the CPUC was, we know we've got this $4 billion a year cost shift. That is, you know, we've got 1.5 million customers right now who have rooftop solar, and the tab that they're not paying is $4 billion a year. Quick timeout. Almost looked like Zeta crashed on us, but luckily it's back. It's fine. We thought the whole software was going to go down. We're still here. All right, time in. The policy approved unanimously by the California Public Utilities Commission lessens the overall payment for selling excess power. It also revamps electric rates to encourage people to build home storage systems alongside their panels so they can tap that stored power at night or feed it back to the grid which would help the system rely less on fossil fuels. Although solar panels provide most of California's power during the day, fossil fuels mainly take over during the evening and night. Sometimes, California has more solar power than it can use during the day. In the place of Nick Costanzo, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. I've never been more afraid when I looked over at the screen and I played the cut and then it just says, Zeta is not responding right now. Yeah. I had to just take a second and let everybody know, oh my gosh, this almost happened. Um, that's the worst. That's the worst fear. That's yeah. honestly the worst fear, especially during Islander games when that happens. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Don't worry. Our Islanders producers have contingency plans 
for that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, but thank you, Nick, for that. Um, really interesting stuff in terms of how California uses their solar power. Um, if they don't, if they have more than they need, I think that's pretty cool. Um, but I can see why people will be angry that others are not paying their fair share for their electric bills. But it seems like it's only really a daytime thing because at night you're not getting any sunlight. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to keep moving on here on the Winning Wake Up Call. We were also um, supposed to be joined by Ashley Blum. You may remember her from last time, new department member. She was going to do a report um, before we get into our final segment. Um, unfortunately, she's also uh, dealing with some illness. So Amelia will take over for Miss Ashley Bloom. Amelia, you ready to go? Yeah. All right. Whenever you are ready. Hang on. All right. Go for it. In the past few weeks, many public school districts across the U.S. have been announcing their plans for the 2023-2024 school year. Their plans don't include many changes to typical school procedures. However, one massive change has come into the light. A school week with only four days instead of five, with an extra 30 to 60 minutes added on to each day to compensate for lost time. This practice may seem foreign to many of us, however, districts in over 25 states have already adopted this type of school week, and districts in southern states like Texas and Florida are planning to implement it next year as well. Many district boards have come forward claiming that this new practice was designed to increase the amount of teachers wanting to work in their areas, since there are over 300,000 less teachers in schools across America ever since the COVID-19 pandemic. Districts have explained that the extra day off gives teachers more time to lesson plan and grade papers, as well as more time to prepare themselves, plus it's one less day to commute to work. Superintendents have also explained that this shortened school week will benefit students as it will free up more time for extracurricular activities and promote more enthusiastic learning on the days where children are in school. Students have shown a very positive attitude to this approach overall, although some have claimed that they actually missed the five-day week. Rob Creat, president of the Hillsborough Schools Association in Florida, shares his opinion on implementing the new system. The funding from the state, the needs of our students, we have to find every possible way to meet their needs. And if that means changing the schedule and traditionally how we do the work that we do, we're all for it. We're open to it. There are very mixed thoughts about the new shortened school weeks appearing all across the country. Some believe it has truly revolutionized our schools, our schools, our nation's school system and has paved the way for geniuses. However, many do believe that it is putting students within those school districts at a complete disadvantage since this new style of learning actually takes away approximately 60 hours of learning per year, which does add up fairly quickly for students. More news on this new procedure is still continuing to develop, but one thing is for sure. Our country's education system is and will continue to evolve. The question now becomes which new ideas will benefit students and which new systems could harm them in the future. Thank you, Amelia. And thank you, Ashley, for that report. Um, I could never imagine my hometown switching to a four-day school schedule. I mean, you hear it now in the workforce, but now in school, I think people are very sensitive to the amount of time school is in session. I mean, yeah. Eric Adams really quickly he ran on making school year-round in New York City <gasps> oh that sounds horrible uh would not like that I do yeah. I have grown uh accustomed to the four-day week thanks to being here at Hofstra um you know you can condense your classes into four days I haven't had a Friday class since my second semester of freshman year yeah I have never had a Friday class I haven't even ha I've had a really? I've had a three-day week this year wow then have Monday class either nice really? and it really wasn't that bad yeah 
it was just a lot at all at once. But yeah. the extra days of relaxation and the ability to catch up are invaluable. I think honestly, you should be able to set your schedule. Personally, like if in, you're like in, in high school? school, no, in high school or like in high school, like um, and maybe not in elementary school, but when you're in high school huh. and you, if this depending on the resources available at the school, if you want to only come in four days a week, you should be able to prove you can do that. Yeah, that's true. I just don't know how many, because I guess in college it's easier because there's so many different like majors and disciplines and so many, you know what I mean. But in high school, it's only you're pretty limited. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting though. Maybe it'll come. Maybe this development will come to a school district near you. And when we return, our final segment going over the best of conversations we've had over the past year. But before then, it's Noah's Ark by Coco Rosie. You're listening to the Hofstra When Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. All right, so we're never playing that song again. Um, <laughs> never, never again. Um, never. Nothing against that. nothing against uh, the artist or the or the di- creative direction, but just it's 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 weird. Amelia, you said it was like singing in cursive. Yeah, like you know that like how people like joke about like singing in cursive, like you're like like m- pr- like putting all your words together in like syllables. I don't yeah. know. It was a little eerie in here. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Okay, <laughs> a little surreal. But 20 minutes left in the hour. Danny, Sabine, and Amelia on the morning show. All right, so this is what we've all been waiting for, going through some of the best discussions we've had on the show. Uh, We're going to start quickly with what Nick put. He talked about our discussions about college rankings. Unfortunately, Emil, you were not here for that, I think. Or you were here for that. No, I was here for for that. that. You were here for that. I was here for that. Um, Banning TikTok last week and Mm -hmm. uh, Taylor Swift, our numerous Taylor Swift discussions. Um, I think the college rankings discussion was very good. It got really deep into where we all came from and why we all got here. Um, banning TikTok um, was also interesting because it's something that's picking up steam, especially yeah. now. And then, obviously, Taylor Swift. I mean, we have a lot of heated discussions about Taylor Swift on the <laughs> show. So, on and off. On and off the air, yeah. Uh, so thanks, Nick. Uh, we'll go now to uh, we'll go to Amelia. So, Amelia, what are your favorite conversations we've had this semester? Yeah, so as our resident Swifty, I really enjoyed getting to talk about one of my favorite artists, Taylor Swift. Um and hearing everyone's thoughts on her and um yeah just some interesting stuff there i enjoyed all of our midterms discussion um that was obviously a really prevalent prevalent uh topic throughout the semester um both before and after the midterm elections so it was interesting to hear everyone's thoughts on different candidates kind of hear different things talk about different things that were playing out um in the house and the senate um, you know, we just recently talked about the Georgia runoff election. So, yeah, all of that kind of conversation was super interesting um, and definitely important as college students to be in the know and be aware of these things that are going on in our government. And lastly, the Halloween show. Uh, it was just a fun show. We had some good topics. We talked about um, everything from politics to uh people finding you know drugs and halloween candy which that's not a good thing but it was definitely interesting to talk about um and then we just talked about you know what we got to do on hollow weekend um so it was, i always like those kinds of conversations where we can break away from the news and the heavy hitting stuff and just talk about our lives as college students i think that's always fun oh yeah the halloween show is one of my favorites um the midterm stuff we really went all out on that especially since we were the day before election day 
So there's a lot of pressure on us to make sure we're ready to go. We had that whole midterm panel yes, on the air. Good. That was the day before. That was actually our last one hour show, that show, the day the day before the midterms. Um, so that was uh, that was a lot. And yeah, I mean, Taylor Swift is always going to be Taylor Swift on this show. And, then the, and like I said, the Halloween show, very strong. Um, yeah, no, it's it's good looking back. And it's crazy that the ho- Halloween was like two, almost two months ago. Yeah. Time, yeah. Time, time flies. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, all right, Sabelle, what about your favorite segments? Um, I also like the Halloween show. I think for a lot of the same reasons, I like when we can have um, more personal discussions, uh, like talking about what we did and stuff like that. I also really liked, I can't remember what show it was, but when we talked about... Um, the feature of Cartoon Network, um, because I'm a big fan of Cartoon Network shows. I love cartoons in, in general. Um, so, and it was big news at the time that um, Warner Bros. made that announcement. So, I don't like those were probably my two favorite moments on the show. But honestly, I think I found something to love in like every episode that we've yeah. done. No, or not episode show. Sorry. Every show, yeah. I already mentioned the Halloween show, but the future of Cartoon Network, I think that was a big story that wasn't getting enough attention. But man, Warner Brothers still still suffering. You mentioned that Cavill's no longer Superman. Mm-hmm. It's sad because he was in he was in Peacemaker. He was in Black Adam mm-hmm. and now they're just rebooting him. I feel bad for him. Like I feel bad for him too. I'm not a DC person. I'm definitely more of a Marvel girl. But like, I when I think of Superman, I kind of thought of him as the face of Superman. But maybe DC fans don't feel the same. Why is he no longer? I they want to go in a they want to do a younger Superman story. Oh, I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not a big superhero movie fan. I don't care for Marvel or DC. Oh. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I can really speak on that. I, I guess that kind of makes sense. It's just, if you're Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you were in Black Adam, this movie that's been in the works for so long, you're in one film and they're going, oh, we're gonna actually going to reboot the whole universe after your show, after your, after your movie. Yeah. That's sad. I think DC just has zero direction now. Like, they pop yeah. out the occasional Wonder Woman the occasional Suicide Squad, the occasional Joker, but that's it. Like, those three are honestly it. Like, Birds of Prey was okay, but the rest of their library is just not up to snuff. Although I will say that the uh, James Gunn's Suicide Squad, one of my top five favorite movies I've ever seen in my, in my entire life. That was, movie was beautiful. Everything wait, was James Gunn's, like, was that the one that came out, like... Recent, that was not the first, not the first Suicide Squad, the one that came oh. out with... Um, with King Shark and Pete Davidson. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because yes. I haven't seen it, but I remember he was the only reason I wanted to watch yeah. the second one. Yeah, and he died in the beginning. Spoilers. Oh. <laughs> um, um he wasn't even in the movie for that long. No, that one of the top five movies I've ever seen. So Warner Brothers has it, but they don't have it on Cartoon Network anymore, clearly. That was a big part of our childhoods as we mentioned on that discussion. So obviously, yeah. It's too bad to see Cartoon Network fall to the clutches of corporate mergers. Um, as, it co- as it pertains to what my favorite segments on the show have been, um, when we talked about Olivia Dunn, unfortunately, Millie, you were not here for that, but we just essentially discussed um, how her branding is very 
how she really uses her sex appeal to um, maximize her reach and her following online, even though she's also an athlete who can make money from her athletics. Uh, obviously, that one discussion we had about Twitter, it was after Vice Dimity was interviewing the topic. That was probably our best discussion top to bottom in terms of flow, in terms of everyone bringing something to the table. That was very, very strong. I think we were really, we really firing on all cylinders on that one. Even and even Vice Dimitrio told me after that show, he said, "You guys talking about Twitter? That was spot on." And then the last one was probably when we talked about Biden's age. Um, not only our discussion about whether Biden should run, what it means that he's eighty, his political viability, but also this kind of ties into what we talked about with Gavin Newsom not wanting to run, being a supporter of the president. And my interview with uh, Cheryl Gay Stolberg from the New York Times, who wrote a piece about how cognitive decline isn't uniform across age. You know, maybe Biden, his age could be a good thing in some respects, or maybe his his age solidifies some aspects of his memory. I don't know how true that is, given Biden's track record. But certainly after the midterms, there's been a lot of talk about how he is still politically, at least in a strong position. I think the common theme about a lot of these topics that we've brought up today or that they have they haven't been on an isolated incident like we've brought them up on multiple occasions and multiple different forums even like cartoon network you know that's just dc that's that's warner brothers the halloween show is a halloween show but you know everything else twitter um biden's age the midterms taylor swift tiktok you know we in college we've talked about all these things so much over the course of the semester and they really transcend one specific show. Do you guys have any other favorites that you did that you thought of now after we talked about it? Um, hmm. Not off the top of my head, but we were interesting in, like talking um, during the break a little bit about. I asked you guys if you learned cursive in elementary school, and you said yes, and we kind of came not came to the conclusion, but we realized that students in elementary schools aren't really mandated to learn cursive anymore in most places yeah it's kind of yeah. crazy yeah just, we were just and also also we you know it'll be really fun to rank and this is hard to remember but best off-air discussions yeah that would be a so lot good. of those we have a, we've had a lot of those mm-hmm. um, this is this that's morning that's morning wake up call unplugged right there <laughs> now that's unplugged. that's if we're just a regular cw show that's the hbo max expansion of our show um <laughs> Usually it's just me and Nick talking about politics, but also hmm. it's us talking about Taylor Swift off the air. Yeah. I think we've had more Taylor Swift discussions off the air than on the air. Taylor uh, Swift. Sure. Yeah. And also, I put a list together of probably the best interviews we've had on the show, and these are all live interviews we've done. Um, starts with Jimmy Fela uh, from Fox. He, you know, he's very funny. Um, got to know him well over the summer. Big shout out to him for coming on our first two-hour show. And uh, the the good part about talking to Jimmy was that he has a lot of advice for kids here at the Herbert School trying to make a name, a brand for yourself. And he's somebody who we talked about this in the interview. He's able to do TV. He's able to do radio. He obviously has his radio show, but he's also he's he's always showing up on on any other Fox's programming like America's Newsroom or Outnumbered or Gutfeld. So I thought that was a really great interview for a two-hour show. Um, and also John Kane on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, that was another really impactful uh, interview that shed a light on how we view Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. That was a long interview. That was about half an hour. 
Yeah, that was one of our. That was our. Oh, that was a good one. That was our longest interview we've done on I think the show ever, Um, and by ever I mean the last four years, and (laughs) it was well worth doing that. Um, Definitely. Also, Richard Davey, the MTA Transit president, if I'm not mistaken, he was really solid uh, as well. Really great to talk to someone like him. Um, He also talked about um he also talked about their con- consumer report um probably would have liked to ask him more about the LIRR if i had to do that interview again but he was still really nice to talk to very nice guy and we and we were talking about this interview after it aired the second after it aired but the interview with Alexander Sherman from NBC about Disney man clearly knew his stuff um talked about Disney at length about how their corporate culture has shifted now with Bob Iger's return and then Susan Poser, president here at Hofstra, coming on the show in our first two-hour edition, live in studio. That interview was so, it was so just interesting to just talk to the president in a very human way, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes you, and this isn't, and this isn't a Susan Poser thing, this is a general adult administrator thing, but sometimes you feel a little intimidated to talk to somebody in a high position just from the sheer gravity of like, oh my gosh, this conversation is happening with somebody who has a lot of power, a lot of influence. Right. But I think the good thing, Sybille and I, we did that interview, was it was very it was very casual, it wasn't very, you know, tense. Mm-hmm. You know, we asked her important things about the Unispan when it was broken, um, but we also talked about just what she enjoys to do, personally, her hobbies. We talked about how she likes Dua Lipa. Um, yeah, that was surprising. That, yeah, that, I actually knew that before the interview. Um, <laughs> But uh, it's still really interesting to talk to her. Like I went to, I went to her house actually. Um, after, like this was like recently. I went to. Her, I was invited to oh, her really? house. Yeah, for like a student leadership, uh, just nice little dinner. And she and she and I had a great conversation. And you know what it is? It's always like you just need one conversation with somebody, one good conversation. And I feel like if that person's a good person and you're a good person, you're just gonna be. You're gonna be on good terms for a long time. That's all it takes. You need to break that ice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen Dr. Poser around many times in my functions as the as my as in student government association. I'm the communications chair, and I've seen her a lot. But really talking to her on the air really broke the ice. And now like when she sees me, she says hi to me, and you know we talk, and I keep her informed about what's going on with the radio station and what's going on with me, and SGA as well. And I, I'm very grateful we had that conversation with her because I think it's. It's emblematic of how the show is able to be its own thing. It's able to be different. It's able to humanize its guests and get to the root of issues. It's not super dry. It has personality. It has variety. Um, were there any other interviews that you guys liked? Don't want to leave you guys out of this conversation. Um, oh, I liked the one last week about going on like a date with yourself because I think that's important. Faith Hill. Just, yeah. Yes, to just spend time with yourself and just get comfortable. Um, it's like as like you know sad as it sounds it's not supposed to be sad yeah. being alone um because you know I, I think i'm a very extroverted person but i also do i find myself as i not i'm get I'm not old but as i you know get get older and mature i find myself enjoying alone time more than i ever did before like i love just going to a coffee shop and sitting by myself and doing my work or like I don't know, like just grabbing, going out and grabbing lunch, like just it's so it's so relaxing to what, me. What about you, Sybil? Anything that you that comes to mind immediately for you? 
Um, for a favorite interview? Uh, no, because I the one with John Kane for in was it John Kane for yeah. Indigenous People's yeah. Day? Yeah, yeah, that was for sure my favorite. Like when I think about like a an interview that really hit for me, like that one was that one was really great. Like I think we got really really great insight and important. And just like an important perspective yeah. at an important time, I think. Yeah, and just I'm going through the interviews now. Uh, probably my favorite person that I've interviewed all year, or one of my favorites, uh, Lonnie Venti, the um, creative director and beauty writer. Uh, her and I still talk occasionally. Really? Uh, yeah, no, she's so nice. Um, she actually, I remember if you were listening to the interview, she was. Marilyn Monroe for a week as part of a Cosmo story. Yes, yes, I remember. And she that. actually gave my girlfriend tips when she was dressing up as Marilyn for Halloween. That's awesome. Yeah, oh, that's so that so was really fun. nice of her. Um, talked to Jessica Tarlov. That was that was our first show. Um, Dr. Eli Rosenberg. Or that wasn't. We didn't do that one, but that aired on a show that was very good. Uh, David A. Graham on. I believe it was South Carolina. Either one of the Carolina, I think it was North Carolina State Legislature. Um, Nicole Hemmer, that was a really good interview. Um, Josephine here at RHU actually told me that was one of her favorites. Talked about the history of the GOP after Reagan. Uh, Russell Berman right after the midterms. I already mentioned uh, Tom Bonnier on women in the midterms. Looking through our live ones now. We had Kate O'Brien on the show. Love Kate, Miss Kate. Um, the Ivan Cardona about ethnic media. Uh, Martine Hackett about abortion and reproductive rights when the documentary was, scre was screened. Steve Bosquet from Florida talking about DeSantis. Um, Tim Alberta about democracy in peril. Uh, looking through this now. We had the election yeah. panel. That was a live interview. Um, Linda Greenhouse. Um, Dr. Webster from the New York Times talking about um, ch child mental health. Um, oh, I like that one too. Th that was a really good one. Honestly, mm -hmm. I'm just realizing how many interviews we, we did. We did like, so I many. I feel like once we finish a show, I kind of just like, uh, it kind of leaves my memory. But, you know, talking about this is just a reminder of how much we've covered yeah. on Morning Wake Up. Danny DeSanti, Dean Kemerinsky. Um, that was a law, that was a law uh, dean from some from a law school. I'm, the name is escaping me. Uh, Carly Pearson, the attorney. Celia Burke, Hofstra alum. She did songs. She, uh, was a, was a cover artist um looking for more uh jamie bronstein the dating expert um there's one more oh matthew dalek that was about political violence and um we had one there was one more and and we just aired packages too like we talked about the live from cdoa events mm -hmm. or the ones we just aired today so we had a lot guys we had so many interviews yeah. It's actually crazy how many. Oh, Brooks Barnes about um, Me Too in Hollywood. So many guys. So many interviews that we've had. And this isn't even including. Um, we talked to, oh, Cl Claire Woodcock about AI. That was last week. That oh, was really good. Oh, that AI was essay. really good. One of I my, did look further yeah, into it. One of my <laughs> friends, um, actually, she was talking about it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we just talked about that on Morning Show. And it, it, it works. It does work. Yeah. When I experimented with it, of course, not it, for yeah, any not for any any malicious for any purpose. <laughs> but guys, we have we have about two minutes to go. I want to give each of you a second for your final words before I wrap as my final show as director. So we'll start with Sabil. Any, any final um, thoughts? 
honestly, it was just a great semester working with you guys. I Anyone who really knows me knows that I am not at all a morning person, but I was obviously willing to make that sacrifice for morning wake-up call because this is something that I really love doing on campus um, and something that I'm passionate about. So I'm glad that I got to share it with you guys. And yeah, Anything, Amelia? Yeah, I second that. Um, it was a lot of fun working with you guys. Danny, this was our second morning show together, so it was great to work with you again. Uh, and I just want to commend you for everything you've done here at the with the morning show department. I think you've really taken it to the next level, and I know it's in good hands now with our new uh, directors, Dallas and Alexa. Absolutely. Um, it's been a pleasure working with you guys. This show was amazing. So many interviews, so many great discussions. We got it to two hours. Uh, we hit two hours running. I'm very grateful I was able to do two two hours with you guys you do not have to do that you know you signed up for one hour but you wanted to do two um the show has come so far in the past year and it goes it really goes to you guys you guys deserve all the credit you know big shout out to mario for helping us out all the time and emily campbell for being my right hand woman and with the department as well as you sabil for all your work also serving on the board and yeah i could not be any more grateful i'm just looking at the time yeah, we have about 40. I have about 45 more seconds for this uh, thank you. But, man, it's just been such a journey uh, taking the show to the direction where it is now. And I think it's in a good place. Has room to grow, obviously. That's what Alexa and Dallas will be surely pursuing. But I have so much faith in them. I have so much faith in the staff. And I know as I leave my role as director behind, I couldn't be any more proud of the work I did. You know, the, whatever I've been told, my dad told me this, you know, make sure you leave something better than you found it. And you know what? I feel like I left this show better than I found it, but also that's everyone came in and they got better on the show. So that'll do it for the final fall morning wake-up call. Remember, the show, the show comes back January 2nd. That's a Monday in the new year, so don't be afraid to tune in then. And for the last time as morning wake-up call director, this is Danny DiCrescenzo. Have a great rest of your day. about ARC is available at arcbrokers.com. That's arcbrokers.com. Oropuro Due Jewelry and Watches underwrites programming on WRHU. Oropuro Due 